0: Welcome to another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. I'm Michael Fagan, founder, publisher, and editor of Jazz Is Magazine. To learn more about Jazz Is, log on to jazziz.com. My guest for this episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think is pianist, hit maker, three-time Grammy winner, festival artistic director, radio and TV personality, and now head of a new record label, Mr. Ramsey Lewis. Now at 80 years old, Ramsey has recorded over 80 albums, had the first major jazz record back in 1965, and has since received seven gold records and three Grammy Awards so far in his career. But his prize attribute is that he's a true gentleman, loved by so many fans, musicians, and people around the world. So please enjoy the man best known for The In Crowd, Mr. Ramsey Lewis.
1: I love this city. Uh, what a wonderful city. Um, a lot of my musician friends moved to L.A., some moved to New York, and I decided i just going to stay here, and I'm glad
2: I did. Yeah, well, they, A lot of great musicians came out, like yourself, came out of Chicago.
1: Yeah, that's right.
2: You know, in fact, uh, a lot of those guys came back to Chicago from L.A. and New York, too. Yeah, it's a a great place to be, especially this time of year, because I I always tease people. I say there's really only three things I don't like about Chicago, and that's January, February, and March. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know,
1: living here all my life, you expect it, you get ready for it, and you know that it's only... You know, three months or so, and you deal with it. Yeah. And, then, and then touring the way I do, a lot of times we plan just not to even be here most of that time.
0: Yeah,
2: that's, that, that, that's what my brother used to do, too. Of course, now he's a Floridian, so he doesn't worry about the weather at all, except uh, right now it's about as miserable as you can imagine, hot and humid. Yeah, yeah, that's the backside of Florida. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's, I guess there's no perfect place. I mean, California's not perfect. I, I guess I guess when they say nothing's perfect, is that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, uh, let me start by saying a happy belated 80th birthday. Um, you're 80 years old. You're a great-grandfather. I saw all the beautiful birthday wishes on your website from Quincy and Herbie and Bob James and Diane Reeves. And then I, I saw a, a wonderful card, uh, I, I guess a handwritten illustration from Cecile McClaren-Salvant. Yes. Just, just beautiful. And... Uh, Again, happy birthday, congratulations. Thank you. I wanted to uh, start with something that was a little bit bizarre, I guess, for a music interview, and that is, um, if you Wikipedia Ramsey Lewis, there's a disclaimer at the top talking about the Ramsey Lewis method, and um, some people might confuse that for Ramsey Lewis, the artist. But it's an interesting twist on maybe what you are all about, in my opinion, and that is the Ramsey Lewis method was created by two guys, Frank Ramsey and David Lewis, and it was really a a way of defining theoretical things, scientific theories, and and it was all about um, if you're, I guess the analogy would be if you are defining a word by using the word in the definition. It's almost not relevant. Um, and hmm. and, and in, 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 to use this sort of nuclear physics side of it, if, if you... We talk about things in science like electrons and how they spin, but it's all theoretical because nobody's actually seen an electron. Um, it's, it's all scientific theory. And, and they commonly call that effect ramsification. And I like to use ramification in a way to describe you, the way you, you have done things in the music world that have really changed the landscape and, and, and things like truly decategorizing American music as even Quincy Jones put it in your birthday wish. Um, how, what was about your interest in music and in playing music? for people in introducing music to people that sort of either purposely or um, subconsciously led to this, what I call, decategorization?
1: Well, it must have been subconscious because I've never had anything on my mind during my career from 12 years old until today except learning how to play the piano better. Uh, And communicating with uh, the audience, so there are no other motives at all. And communicating from the audience with the audience, I learned from playing in our church. My dad said, nine years old, and he said, "You're going to start playing for our choir." uh, I started playing for our gospel choir. If you don't communicate when you're playing for a gospel choir, you're in big trouble. (laughs) Uh, so my dad taught me that. Then I had a wonderful piano teacher, Dorothy Mendelssohn, that, um, she felt that you should master the piano. All 88 keys should, should be under your control, under your fingers, as she would say. Mm Uh, so I never have any other motives in my mind except, um reach out and touch and do that through my music. And I realized if I'm going to do it, then I better darn well uh, keep my chops in shape. And so to this day, I practice. Um, when I'm not on the road, on the road we don't because it's, it's difficult. But uh, I, we have check and all that, but I don't practice. But whenever I'm home, you'll find me at the piano. And I just love the piano. I mean, I love the touch, the sound, the feel. And, um... Uh, there it is.
2: That's me. Well, but now, to, to describe you as a pianist is certainly one facet, and, and, and maybe arguably uh, what you're most known for. But you're, just, you're not just a pianist. You're a composer. You're a hit maker. You're a three-time Grammy winner. You're a festival artistic director. You've been a radio and TV personality. And now you're the head of a brand-new record label. And so the the art of presentation is seemingly... What you are largely about, in my opinion. Yeah, but you know what? All that—that's That's interesting.
1: That's a—that's a great question because I didn't play any of that. I mean, I—it was through my music. It was through playing the piano and at the radio show. Because early on, I was doing an interview and in, and in, um, in WNUA, which used to be here, and Yvonne Daniels used to be down there before before the call. There's were WNUA. And the station manager said, you and his aunt should have a radio show together. And so that that started the radio thing. And the TV, TV was almost the same thing. Public television in Chicago called me because something was going on. And they said, how would you like to do this, that, and the other? So it's through my piano playing and staying true to my heart that has taken me to different places and different in front of different people and I'll be darned if, if every so often somebody will walk up to me and say, how would you like to and I'll be darned if, if it isn't something that maybe I was thinking about or maybe not thinking about it, but it felt good at the moment, so I would and many of the things just, just happened. The gold records the, uh, the Grammys, the touring uh, all of the things in my life that make a successful um, career have stemmed from the fact that I was prepared to be where I was, and wherever that was, whether it was on a festival and somebody backstage, say, have you ever thought of, or whether it was uh, in a TV station about to be interviewed by somebody else, and later on, they say, have you ever thought of, I can't count the amount of times that that question has been asked of me and no I, there was no, I can't think of any time in my life that I laid awake at night or early in the morning thinking, Jesus, I'd like to have a TV show. Wow, well, it would be great to have a radio show. Wow, it would be great to have Grammys. Wow, it would be great to have hit records. Never, never have I ever thought those thoughts.
2: They just came from what I'm about. Oh, that's great. So so let's take you back 65 years. At uh, 15 years old, you had your first band, The Clefts, And... That kind of was where it all started and, and and the trio is something that is seemingly very important to you and it, it sort of defined you in a way um, and the 50th anniversary of one of the biggest jazz hits in the history of music the in crowd just took place some call it one of the greatest crossover hits in, in the history of jazz take me back to that time what was going on what what was the What were your colleagues thinking? What was the record label thinking when jazz became a hit? Well,
1: they weren't expecting it. I I tell you that. Uh, And just to add a few little touches to being 15 years old, I didn't know the first thing about jazz, but fortunately I was at the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. because the guy who was the leader of the clefts, and he says, you want to come play with our band? I said, in fact, he was one of the church musicians after church. He says, you want to play with our band? You see, he'd heard me play Bach and Beethoven and such. And uh, he thought, and gospel music, he heard me play those musics. So I said, sure. And But I got to, he said, oh, well, just show up Friday night at the uh, Union Park Fieldhouse because there's a dance at 7 o'clock. It's over 11. And I got there, and he said, okay, we're going to play a Charlie Parker piece. I didn't know that. And he said, well, okay, we're going to play a standard. I'm in the mood for lighting. Long story story Long story short, Wallace Burton, who was the leader of the Clefs, mm-hmm. uh, he's the one. He says, okay, you go sit over there, and I'll take you home later. On the way home. Well, you know, there was, there was a warning, because before he said, do you want to play with that band? he says, our piano player, Stuart, Kirk Stewart, uh, Sarah Vaughan called him. She heard him play, and Sarah Vaughan, he went to play with her. So I should have known from that. Sarah Vaughn called their original piano player. No way that she would have called me. <laughs> All I knew was gospel music and classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once again, I'm not so far away from your
2: question. What was your question? About the, what was going on at that time, that your colleagues, the, the record label, uh, jazz became a hit, which wasn't a common thing. No, yeah, it was not, a, not only was it not a common thing, but when the record company
1: called called us, LD Young, Red Holt, myself, the trio, we were playing, I'm, well, I'm way past 15, I think I'm in my late 20s. 20s. Yeah. And uh, we were playing in um, Detroit, and I'll never forget, I think it the phone, it was a record company, uh, Phil and Leonard Chess. They said, you guys got it, I think you guys got a hit record. Well, it was like somebody, speaking Greek to me a, 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 hit, a jazz hit record I, I could not even fathom what the, what they were talking about because their label Chess Producing uh, had Muddy Waters and they were a big blues label mm-hmm. um, so a jazz hit record was, was unusual in those days as it is now um, but fortunately the record crossed over as you know to pop and R and B and all other categories, and what what makes it do that? I don't I don't know, I don't know. I as I sometimes now I listen to it when it comes up wherever they're playing oldies or whatever on radio, and uh, I do hear elements of gospel in there and and um, other things that uh, I was influenced by, hmm. but. You know, if, if you could formulize it, I'm sure by now every jazz musician in the world
2: would have a hit record. <laughs> well, you, you, at that time, you were essentially competing with the Beatles. And, 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 and back then, I know that you did a, let's call it a ramsification of A Hard Day's Night, early on. Well, did the Beatles have an influence on your interest in pop music?
1: Well, I went to a high school Wells High School was a multicultural high school. In fact, it was, I don't know, 75% white. Eastern European uh, kids uh, from Poland and that, that area of Europe. And they're American, of course. But they listened to a lot of pop music. And so in the wintertime, as we were talking before, January, February, March, it's too cold to go outside. So in the wintertime, they had a radio with big speakers, and they, they, they would play, uh, whoever got in there first would play music. And some kids would get in there, and they'd have on a pop station. So I would sit there, and we would listen to pop music until the time to go to our next class. Or sometimes an R&B station would be on. Sometimes a blues station would be on. And then, of course, at home there was gospel music. So the influence of all this music was there, and so you hear all that in the in crowd, and it it really blew my mind also when 50 years later um, I looked at the Billboard chart, and um, I mean, at that time, there with Elvis Presley and Barbara Streisand and and the Beatles, you're right, uh, was this little group called Ramsey Lewis
2: Trio with this song called "The In Crowd." It's oh, great. Well, the you know Branford Marsalis once said that um, most people stop listening to jazz when you could no longer dance to it. Uh, there is a it, almost an infectious groove, rhythm and blues, sort of the fabric of some of your music. Um, you know, f- from the In Crowd to Later material and later albums, um, and some of references to Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, and you met Maurice White way back before there was an Earth, Wind, and Fire. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah,
1: Maurice White was um, the staff drummer back in those days. More than fifty years ago, um, Maurice White. Um, Chess producer who had these blues, Muddy Waters, etc., guys that were hit records. Um, they also had a house band. And Charles Stepney and Maurice White was on the on the band. And so they hired, they had signed us to the label because they wanted to start a jazz label called Cadet. First was called Argo, then it was called Cadet. And so I used to see Maurice down there, a very quiet, spoken guy. And... Um, you know, he was, hi, Ramsey. I mean, to this day, Maurice doesn't talk much over a whisper. <laughs> he <laughs> sings. You know, it's on, it's on stage. He's all over the place. Not now. He don't travel anymore. But anyway, Ramsey, how are you doing? So you guys are on the road? And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he would say, so what's a publishing company? What's a, what, how, what's a record? How's a... What? How did when you tour? He had all these questions, and finally the the original trio broke up, and I had Maurice. uh, I asked him when he joined the trio, and he did, and he stayed with me for about three four years. And after the three four years, he started saying, you know, sooner or later I'm going to leave and form my own group. Well, he never said what kind of group. And in my mind, I thought he was going to form a trio or a quintet with you know, a trumpet or a saxophone lead or a trumpet and saxophone lead and play straight ahead jazz. Because I knew here, here in Chicago, Maurice uh, had played with Gene Ammon, Sonny Stitt, and all the cats. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't tell me what he was going to do. Finally, when he left, uh, he says, well, I'm, I'm going to go and move to California I said, okay, so what, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to put the group together. And I said, oh, so quintet, sextet. He says, oh, no, man, we're, we're going to play jazz, we're going to play R&B, we're going to dance, we're going to this and that. I said, man, you ought to take an aspirin and go lay down. I don't know. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like you're kind of confused. He says, no, no, man, we're going to do all that stuff. Well, he did. And he stayed in touch. And, um, oh man, about two or three years after, maybe, yeah, about three years after he left, maybe three or four years, uh, I was playing in Washington, D.C. They, they had opened, he was opening for people at that time, they had opened for Sly and the Family Stone at Madison Square Garden. And as the story goes, he, their group, Earth, Wind & Fire, stole the show from, I mean, they brought the house down in front of, Of, uh, Sly Stone. Anyway, Maurice called me. He says, Man, I got this tune for you. It's going to be a big hit. I said, What is it? And he said, Well, I'm not going to tell you, but, you know, if you want it, we're coming, we're going to go back to California, but what are you doing? I said, Well, I'm in Chicago these days. I got to go back to, I mean, I'm recording in Chicago. I got to go back home and finish my recording session. He says, Me and two or three of you guys will stop there if you want and uh, show you this record and, and record it with you in fact and man he says it's going to be bigger than the Incra. well once again i thought he you know was having sunstroke or something uh <laughs> bigger than the Incra. so they got there like, Who was it philip bailey maurice white and verdine ralph and one or two of the other guys they stayed in chicago for about three days working on this tune we finally finished it, and he says, well, we're going to call it Hot Dog It, and that's, just, that's it. And so they were wrapping up stuff, and he says, ah, oh, man, there's this other little tune. It has a nice melody, but yes, you know, I couldn't extend it any longer. So it's really, it's just about 12 or 16 bars of a very, very nice melody. So to make it longer, we'll just have everybody solo, and then we'll go back to the melody. Then we'll solo some more, and then we'll go back to the melody. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> and we did that and had fun with it. But uh, at that time, he was used to having words or voices on the record. And so there were no words. He says, oh, we've got to have voices on there. I said, really? You, you can't write lyrics now. It's too late. He said, well, he went over in the corner and was thinking and walking around to him, talking to himself. <laughs> he says, okay, we're going to go in the, in the, in the booth. And we're just going to say, way yo, way yo, way yo. And he did just that. And Sun Goddess, not the one he thought hot dog it, but the one that was almost a throwaway, became almost
2: as big as the in-crowd. It sure did. It sure did. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Everyone talks about the in-crowd, Sun Goddess. For me, it was Tequila Mockingbird. Ah. And and in fact, that album, not just for me, but I think for a lot of music fans out there, certainly jazz fans, it was their introduction to really great contemporary jazz, of what some people might call smooth jazz, but I don't think it's smooth jazz. There wasn't a name for it back then. I know you don't like to categorize. I don't like it either. There was something about that record that resonated with an audience that may have grown up listening to RRB, but they were looking for something else, and that was it.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of energy on that album, and variety. Um, you know, W and UA, the station that I had my show on, was a smooth jazz station. And Tequila Mockingbird uh, had just a bit too much energy on it uh, for them. But I enjoy playing it, and that was an extension years later of the association with um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, because Larry Dunn, the keyboard mm-hmm. player who was still playing with Earth, Wind, and Fire, he called me and he's the guy who put together a group of people and uh, did some writing for the album. And Tequila Mockingbird, although it didn't become a smash, it was a, a fair hit. I mean, it was a pretty good hit for me. Mm-hmm. And it, the people that really understood the music and, and felt the music requested that that song and other songs on the album and, and That's one of my favorites too. I don't you know after after having as many albums as I have they're like your children You know you don't know how to you, This was my favorite. No, this one's my favorite. No, they're all my favorites, but uh, I
2: think of that one often. Well, you know You're 80 years old and I, I think if I counted you have about 80 albums in your discography um, which is, obviously, if you do the math, it's about one a year, although probably didn't start that early. But the, um, as a good segue to your, your new album, Taking Another Look, you actually opened with one of my favorite tracks from Tequila Mockingbird. Which one? Intimacy. Oh, right, right, right. Well, first, let me clarify
1: how it got to be 80 albums in 80 years. Okay. The, f- the first 20 years or so, of my recording, I started recording in the in the fifties, mm-hmm. and throughout the middle fifties, sixties, and it wasn't until the early seventies, almost twenty years later after I started recording, we were doing two albums a year. Wow! And this is when we, we were still with the with Chess. I'd left and gone to Columbia. Uh, the first part of the seventies, and nobody said you shouldn't do but one album a year to give it enough time to develop and be marketed and promoted, et cetera, et cetera. So before I knew it, you know, we had 40 albums or 35, 40 albums. And before we started doing uh, one a year, and so that's how it got to
2: be um, 50 albums. Wow. A lot of music. So on the new record, um, I noticed that and I listened to Sun Goddess. Looks like you made a couple of uh, couple of differences. Uh, maybe remix this one. You went back into the studio. Well,
1: not really. No? not really. Um, this is this is the version that's on uh, uh, on on the original album. Yeah, yeah. It's just I, maybe 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 in uh, mastering it. Yeah, there's. It?
2: Had a little bit different sound when I listened to it. I thought maybe it was re engineered or something about it that sounded. It could have been maybe my ears were just getting older. I was listening through a better pair of headphones. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: maybe in the mastering of the whole album. Uh, but no, that, that's the original version.
2: Uh, it's, it's great. And there's, a, there's certainly a. I think for maybe for people who don't have a. It'd be kind of hard to find, but somebody who doesn't have a Ramsey Lewis album in their collection, Taking Another Look may be a, a great starting point.
1: Well, Taking Another Look
2: came about because um, we
1: were going to do an album, and they said, well, what? What? what did you somebody suggested, uh, rather than doing all new originals, why don't you do some of the songs that you love to play or you like to record, they're already recorded, but re-record them uh, with the group you have now, which is years later. And so um, these are songs that that I've enjoyed playing and we still play some of those songs in person right now um, with a new twist to them, of course. Yeah. And uh, especially, especially Sun Goddess. Yeah, that's it. And then we have three new guests. We have three great guests on and, um, on um taking another look, which is a wonderful thing, yeah and the, the, Dr. John yep, well, I met him in, in, in New Orleans many, many years ago yeah. and the, the other two groups, my manager introduced me to their music they' they're young guys, and um, they said, well my manager said, you know you ought to listen to these guys and and put them on the album and and give the album another another look, as it were. Mm-hmm. And it just
2: worked out. I'm really
1: proud of the album. I hope people will go out and check it out. I'm
2: sure they will. Now, a guitarist on the album, he's one of these, I guess, that sometimes they call it artists deserving greater recognition. One of my favorites, Henry Johnson. Oh, isn't he the best? He is superb. And I don't know how
1: he has not broken out and, and gotten a bigger name on his own he did have his group. he did have a group of his own for a while uh and he stayed on the road for a minute or two but uh he decided not to do that but you're right he is one of the great guitar players of of all time mm-hmm. and uh he does have some some albums out of his own you know he played with joe williams sure. and, and others but the, he's just one of those quiet guys until he
2: picks up his guitar and then all hell breaks loose. Hey, gentle giant. He, he really is. He's, he's great to watch and great to listen to. Right, right. Tell me about Ramsey's house. Well, this new management that I have,
1: uh, Rainmaker Management, great people, uh, they suggested, you know, you should do your own thing. Well, little story about management. Over, over the course of my career, I think I've had Five or six managers and John Levy who used to manage not Nancy Wilson and he was one of the managers that I really really respected but by and large most of the managers I had didn't do too much more than I could do for myself Mm -hmm. and so this Rainmaker Stan and Brett they for some reason saw my name on my agents roster They were in his office, and Stan called me. And we used to talk for over a year, just once or twice a week. He'd give me a call, we'd just talk. And um, one thing would lead to another, and he would finally, he said, well, we think we have some ideas that could help your career. So by that time, after a year of going back and forth, I said, all right, let's give it a try. And so... It, it's been working. And one of the things that he said, you know, the, the, the model record and product that you put out, maybe it should be on your own label. Mm-hmm. I said, maybe it should. He says, do you want me to put that together? I said, maybe you should. And he knew the people, he knows the people over at uh, Sony uh, Records Red Distribution. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that they were, or are in the business of trying to find new talent and associate themselves with new labels that are looking for new talent. Uh, He called me back. He says, guess what? Uh, You got your own label. You got the marketing. You got promotion. And you got distribution by one of the biggest and best distributing companies in the world. And now it's up to us just to make it work. I said, well, I think we can. And
2: we're having fun already. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I noticed, I read somewhere that, um, that you're going to be seeking a lot of talent out there, and we're in a, as you know, we're in a new age of music distribution, and you know, some people worry about the music business. I think that, and I, I want to see if you agree, I think that there's more music talent out there than ever. It's about having the right people find them and putting them in touch with fans and this definitely is we tour
1: i'm invited to high schools and colleges to do master classes and young kids are totally into the music i mean there's there's jazz bands young jazz bands all across the country um uh, so the music is is in good hands and i'm very happy about
2: that i'm sorry i cut you off no 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 problem at all yeah i think you know the, when I look back at, at, at what you've done over the past 60 years, um, Ramsey's House was a little bit like Ramsey University. I mean, whether it was an Art Blakey, or a Chick Corea, or Quincy Jones, where, or Miles Davis, where people grew up through your bands and went off and did their own thing, now it puts you in a little bit different light. Now, in addition to giving them the experience let's say, on the road or on some of your recordings, you almost have a platform for them to actually do their own thing.
1: Well, the the criteria that we have for the people that's going to be on Ramsey's House is that they do have some experience performing in front of folk, that they already have started their career, learned their their art form, Uh, never totally, but they're practicing their art form, and they've gotten it to a point where uh, they already have a semi-name that they've gotten out there and toured and had their bumps and grinds and know knows what that's all about, and had some seasoning. What we what we are not looking for is is a is a group or a talent that needs to be uh, totally taught what it's all about. Uh, we want some kids or some young people, I should say. Um, uh, that have some experience performing, and, and and what it means to be out there in, in front of folk, and you thought that this song was going to be the song that made everybody jump and scream, and uh, no, it didn't do that. Or this song was going to make everybody fall in love, and no, it didn't do that. And it makes you go back and uh, figure out, well, what did I? It sounds different there. Why did it sound the same? I mean, it's 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 like going to school when you playing in front of folk, and we. We want that to have happened to, to some degree to some of the, the youngsters that we want on the label. So, so would I be right to assume that you, you would be producing some of these albums? i will be producing some of them. My son, uh, Fran Lewis, will be producing some of them because he, he produced, oh my goodness, he produced 10 or 15 of, of the albums I have. Uh, plus other producers. I, I may not be in the studio continuously, but I will be supervising. I will be auditioning. Nobody will be signed to the label unless I first hear them play. And once I hear them play, then I'm going to go travel to wherever they are. It, maybe we might fly them to Chicago. But I, I have to first hear them and see them and see how they handle themselves, see how they perform on their instrument. Uh, before we sign them to the label, and I'm looking forward to
2: it. That's great. Well, it it sounds like a wonderful opportunity when the right artist comes along to kind of have Ramsey Lewis put them under his wing and see if he can make them fly. I think that's fantastic. Well, it has been wonderful reconnecting with you, Ramsey. Uh, Again, happy belated 80th birthday. Wonderful uh, to talk about your new record and your career. And I appreciate your time and hope we can talk again soon. Well, let's not make it so long this time, okay? Promise. It's been great. Thank you. Take care. Bye. -bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for joining me on this episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. Check out our website, jazziz.com. And I look forward to having you back on another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think.